Okay, we're beginning here, three lines down on the top of Kufnun Zayin Amaralif. The Gemara is continuing to discuss what it mentioned yesterday about the Amoraim's position with regards to the Machloka between Rabbi Shimon and Rabbi Yehuda. We know that Rabbi Shimon believes that there is no concept of Muksa vis-a-vis Shabbat, at least with regards to the majority of items. And Rabbi Yehuda, who does subscribe to the idea that there is Muksa by Shabbat. And we found different Amoraim, Paskanin like Rabbi Yehuda and Paskanin like Rabbi Shimon. One of those Amoraim was Rabbi Yochanan, where we said that Rabbi Yochanan Paskin like Rabbi Shimon. The only problem was that we have a, another Psach from Rabbi Yochanan, which is that Rabbi Yochanan believes Halacha Kistam Mishnah. A Stam Mishnah, Rabbi Yochanan always believes, is normative. And therefore, in this situation, if we find Mishnayot that side with Rabbi Yehuda's position that are Stam Mishnayot, then those Stam Mishnayot would then say that the Halacha should be like Rabbi Yehuda. So we already presented one Mishnah that sounded like the Halacha was with like Rabbi Yehuda. And the Gemara answered that 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 was Rabbi Yossi be Rabbi Yehuda, that's a Dat Yachid, that's not a Stam Mishnah, and therefore it's not a contradiction or a conflict in Rabbi Yochanan's Psach. Now we bring in an additional Mishnah. And what's interesting about the Mishnayot they bring down is that they're all from Masechet Beitzah. And that is because the Gemara itself in Masechet Beitzah is going to tell us that Rabbi favored Rabbi Shimon's position with regards to Hilchot Shabbat. And therefore in the Mishnayot in Shabbat, the Stam Mishnah was like Rabbi Shimon, that there is no muksa, and that was the Mishnah that we just saw before. The Baliatos would ask, why didn't the Gemara bring that Mishnah as a proof that this Stam Mishnah is like Rabbi Shimon? It says, because this Mishnah also has Rabbi Yehuda mentioned in it, and Minastam, the Baal Plukta, the Rabbi Yehuda, is Rabbi Shimon, and even though the Gemara in Beitza calls it a Stam Mishnah, say not a Stam Mishnah in the technical terms of a Stam Mishnah, a Mishnah that has no attribution or authorship, it has a Stam Mishnah, meaning that it takes a Dat Yachid and makes as if it is a Dat Rabim. It takes Rabbi Shimon's position and presents it as if it is the Dat of the majority, but not that it's really a Stam Mishnah, because we know that the authorship is Rabbi Shimon, based on the fact that his Bar Plukta is Rabbi Huda, who's mentioned in the Mishnah, as well as the fact that we know Rabbi Shimon is the author of that position. So it's not really a Stam Mishnah here, but nevertheless, the Gemara in Beitzah says that Mishnayot and Shabbat are Stam ke Rabbi Shimon, and Mishnayot and Beitzah are Stam Rabbi ke Rabbi Yehuda, and therefore the Gemara keeps bringing Mishnayot from Beitzah that have Stam Mishnah Rabbi Yehuda, which would present a conflict in Rabbi Yochanan's Psach. So we brought one Mishnah already from Beitzah, and now we're bringing another Mishnah from Beitzah, which is, Matchilim Barimata Teven, Abolo Be'itzim You're allowed to use the straw that is found in the pile, the assumption being that this stuff is rotten, rotten enough that you wouldn't eat it as a person, but you would use it for animal feed, and therefore it's not muksa because it was so rotten that you wouldn't even use it as animal feed, then it's designated for use for cement, and then it would be muksa on Yom Tov. But here it's only as bad or only so rotten that you would give it to an animal, not to a human being, and therefore it's usable for firewood or kindling on Yom Tov, and therefore you're allowed to matchilim, you're allowed to go and start or take something from that pile, because that's the intended use of that tevin. As Rashi notes over here, the muksa is something that's set aside for the winter time. A muksa is a rechavash achreabatim. It's a storage or an area behind the houses that are delineated, designated for storage or for drying things out. And that's where the word muksa comes from, even on Shabbat means it's something that's pushed out of the forefront of your consciousness because something that's put into the muksa is something that you will not think about or not intend to use for a very long time. And similarly, the etzim over here, the wood that's been put into the muksa is there to dry out and be used during the winter season, so it's not something that you have in mind to use. If that's the case, you see that the Mishnah, Astam Mishnah, 
it's subscribing to this idea that there is a concept of muksa vis-a-vis Yom Tov, or that it holds like Rabbi Yehuda. That's the case of Allah Vistah Mishnah, that would imply that Rabbi Yochanan has to believe that the Allah is like Rabbi Yehuda, against his position that we saw yesterday, that he holds like Rabbi Shimon. My answer is, over there it's dealing with cedar wood. Rashi says male cedar wood, female cedar wood. That these are types of wood that are very strong and that are designated for building purposes. And so there, even Rabbi Shimon will agree that that is muksa because... Because as we've said before, Moksa Mahmat Khisiram Kis, I feel Rabbi Shimon Modeh. Even Rabbi Shimon agrees when it comes to Moksa Mahmat Khisiram Kis that that concept of Moksa exists even for Rabbi Shimon. When you have something that is designated for a particular purpose, and that's solely its purpose, then we don't allow it to utilize it for some other alternate purpose because it's going to detract from its value because of the significant value of the item in its designation for that particular purpose. Over here, these pieces of wood are very valuable for building. Nobody's going to use it as firewood. So then if you're going to come on Yom Tov to try to use it as firewood, that's already taking something that was out of your consciousness, something that was muksa coming into Shabbat because it was muksa Ahmad Chisar. And we'll see later on at the end of this Gemara, Rabbi Shimon agrees by Muqsa Mahmat Chisarun Kis. That that's the case, the Gemara is going to prove it from a Mishnah that we had earlier in Shabbat. Tashma. So once again, the Gemara brings another Stam Mishnah from Beitza, because again, the Stam Mishnah in Beitza follows sheet of Rabbi Yehuda, and again, that's going to present the problem for Rabbi Yochanan. Ein mashkim v'shochatim et amid bariot. One is not allowed to give to drink, and to shech those animals that are quote-unquote wild. Now, drinking or having the animals drink, the main issue there is that they are drinking in order to make it easier to flay the animal afterwards and get the skin removed once they shecht it. So it's a sidebar to the shechita. It's whether you're allowed to shech the animal or not. Is the animal muksa or is the animal not muksa? That's the key element. You could add in another dimension, which we saw in the previous tapim, which is you're not allowed to feed or take care of animals that are not domesticated are not under your auspices or do not rely on you for food. But over here, really, the mashkim is not about feeding them, but more about the ease of flaying the animals afterwards. Now, Midbariot, Mishnah there actually has a machloket as to what exactly their definition is. But according to this part of the Mishnah, and the way Rashi explains it over here, Midbariot are animals that stay out. They don't come back in to the yeshuv, to the village or the settled area at nighttime but they stay within the tchum. They're not so far out in the wild that they're really wild animals. They keep a certain tethered distance to the settled or inhabited areas, but they don't necessarily come back every night. And because they're outside of the settled area or inhabited area, these are items that are muksa because they're not in your purview of that which you would expect to use in Yom Tov. These aren't animals that you're going to go run after and find. Yes, you know about them. Yes, you may even own them. But they're not animals that are within your normal auspices or consciousness going into Yom Tov. You don't have intent to use these animals on Yom Tov. Therefore, if you go to use one of them on Yom Tov, it's muksa because migdo de katze benesh Since benesh mashot was out of your purview of the items that you normally expect to use on Yom Tov, Therefore, it's muksa for the entire Yom Tov, and you can't shecht it. On the other hand, mashkim, the shochatim et abaito. The domesticated animals, those that are dependent on you for their sustenance, those that live in close proximity, meaning they come to sleep at night inside of the inhabited areas or in the sheds or the corrals that you've set up for them, those animals you do have in mind to utilize them, and therefore, both since they are dependent on you for food, you can get them to drink, and because they're within your purview or perspective or consciousness going into Yom Tov, you can shaft them on Yom Tov because they're not considered to be muksa. So once again here, you have a concept of muksa 
that creates a problem for Rabbi Yochanan because you have a Stam Mishnah saying there is a concept of Muksa on Yom Tov. Gemara answers Rabbi Yochanan Stam Achrina Ashkach. Rabbi Yochanan found a different Stam Mishnah that supports his contention that the locha is like Rabbi Shimon and it's a Stam Mishnah versus Stam Mishnah and he gives preference to the other Stam Mishnah because he believes the halacha is like Rabbi Shimon. The truth is, as the Baitos will point out, he could even explain the Mishnah in Beitza according to Rabbi Shimon because it could be like Gugurot Vitzimukim. Even Rabbi Shimon agrees by Gugurot and Simukim these are fruits that are put out to dry that again a person there is Mikatze Otaminadat. He pushes them out of his consciousness because he doesn't expect to see them for months after they are dried out. He doesn't expect to use them and therefore it's called dachi biadaim. It's like you're actively pushing them out of your normal usage, your consciousness, and therefore they become muksa, even according to Rabbi Shimon. There are those that disagree, but there is a position like that, that Rabbi Shimon agrees by Grugorot Vitzi Mukin. That could have been the answer over here. Gemara gives an alternate answer, which basically answers all of these questions, which is that Rabbi Yochanan found another Stam Mishnah, which is a Mishnah that we saw back on Kuf Mem Gimel. Persons allowed to remove from the table bones and the shells, and again, there is a machlok Rishonim, all the Rishonim versus Rashi, as to what type of bones we're speaking about. According to most of the Rishonim, these are bones that are ro'oi l'achilat be'ima, whereas according to Rashi, they're not even ro'oi l'achilat be'ima. And therefore, since they were ro'oi Adam coming into Shabbat, and now according to the other Rishonim, they're ro'oi only for be'ima, or according to Rashi, they're not ro'oi for anything, they're muksa yet. Beit Shemai allows you to hand remove them from the table. On the other hand, Beit Hillel omrim misaleket atavla kula minara. You lift up the tabletop and you shake them off. You can do it a tilto minatsad. You can do it in an indirect manner because they are muksa, but you can't do it directly. Now, the table itself does not become a bustis ladovara asur when you put the items on because either there are other heter items on the table or because your intent to put on the table is not for the remainder of Shabbat, only temporarily. We discussed that again, back by the Mishnah on Kufmem Gimel. Then we had the statement afterwards in the Gemara on that Mishnah, He reverses the positions in the Mishnah and says that Beit Shemai subscribes to the position of Rabbi Yehuda that there is Muksa, and Beit Hillel subscribes to Rabbi Shimon's position that there is no Muksa, and therefore it becomes a Stam Mishnah that is like Rabbi Shimon. Well, it's not a Stam Mishnah, it has Beit Hillel and Beit Shemai. So as Rashi notes over here, Beit Hillel chashiv kistamo, that Beit Hillel in a Mishnah is considered to be like a Stam Mishnah, that's based on what we're going to see in the Gemara and Erevin, that Beit Shemai b'makom Beit Hillel eno Mishnah. That Beit Shemai in the face of Beit Hillel is not even considered to be a valid opinion that you can rely on, or a valid opinion that one can subscribe to. And for that reason, when Beit Hillel is found in Mishnah, even with Beit Shemai, it becomes like a Stam Mishnah, because Allah is going to be like that position of Beit Hillel. And therefore Rabbi Yochanan relied on that Mishnah to establish his position, that Rabbi Yochanan says that the halacha is like Rabbi Shimon, that there is no muksa on Shabbat. The question now is, how far does that go? And pligi baravacha viravina. The Moraim that argue about to what extent do we say the halacha is like Rabbi Shimon on Shabbat? Chadamar b'chol Shabbat kula halacha ke Rabbi Shimon. By everything in Shabbat, the halacha is like Rabbi Shimon. There are Rishonim, including the Rashb over here, that suggests that that means that this is not uniquely associated with muksa. It applies to also other things like Malacha Shein Srichad Gufa, Tavar Shein It has a broader swath of items that are included that the Lacha is like Rabbi Shimon. The bar, with the exception of Muksa Machmat Mius. If you have Muksa Machmat Mius, even though Rabbi Shimon there says that there is no Muksa, nevertheless we don't paskin like him in that one narrow part of the Halacha of Muksa. 
because we don't think that's correct. And my Nihu, what's an example of that? Near Yashan. It's a earthenware oil holder that has a wick and oil in it that was already used. Because it was all oily, it becomes ma'us. And that is then muksa machman miyus. You wouldn't use it on Shabbat because of the disgusting nature of it. So that would be something that already is classified as muksa, even though Rabbi Shima doesn't think there's such a concept of muksa by muksa machman miyus. The Chadamar, one of those pair, says that muksa machman miyus, not meyalochik Rabbi Shimon. We pass like Rabbi Shimon, even by muksa machman miyus. That's also not classified as muksa on Shabbat. Blavarmi muksa machmat isur. The only time that we don't pass on like Rabbi Shimon is when it comes to muksa, that's muksa because of the fact that it is doing something or engaged in some activity that would make it a sore for you to come into contact or utilize that item on Shabbat. The classic example is my new ner shidiku Shabbat. It's a candle that is lit on that Shabbat. You can't move it because shemei because maybe it will cause it to extinguish, it will cause it to burn better. It's problematic for you to move it. And therefore, we will not pass in like Rabbi Shimon, even though he believes there's no muksa with regards to that. Does Rabbi Shimon think that there's no problem with Shem Yechabeh? Or he believes that there is a problem with Shem Yechabeh, but he says once it's extinguished, then you can utilize that which is the oil that's inside of it, and then the item itself you can move, because it's not muksa. But Shem Yechabeh, he agrees that you can't move it around while it's lit because of the possibility it will be extinguished. At the end of the Parakakira, Rashi and Tosafot discuss how extensive that Shem Yechabeh is with regards to Rabbi Shimon's opinion. Nevertheless, we, over here, we're saying that the is not like Rabbi Shimon, that it is Muqsa, and that's because, as Tosvot says, it's Kegon Isr de Dechiat Biyadayim, because it's like something that you pushed out actively. You intentionally removed it from the usage on Shabbat because of the fact that you lit it and you made it into something that's Isr ben Ashmashot. The Tosafot back on Yutet Amunbet discusses the fact that Muqsa Machmat Isur is a higher level of Muqsa than Muqsa Machmat Mi'us and that is demonstrated over here by the fact that there's some who believe that the Allah is like a Vishim by Muqsa Machmat Mi'us and it's Mutar on Shabbat whereas Muqsa Machmat Isur would not be permitted and we would not pass in like Rabbi Shimon. And then the Gemara comes to the conclusion that we saw before about Muksa Machmat Chisaron Kis, I feel Rabbi Shimon Modeh. Like we saw before, that when it comes to Muksa, because of a severe financial loss or financial loss that would be caused by utilizing such an item, even Rabbi Shimon agrees that there is Muksa here. That's not, because we have a Mishnah earlier on that is like Rabbi Shimon, because it says, Kol HaKilim Nitalim B'Shabbat. You can take any Kli on Shabbat, which is like Rabbi Shimon, that there's no Muksa on Shabbat. Chutz, and the exception to that rule is Mimasar HaGadol V'yateid Shomachrisha. It is a lumberjack's saw, and the plow's blade that it uses to cut through the ground. That blade is a very expensive item. You would not utilize it for anything else because it's such an expensive, unique, specialized item, and therefore you're not going to use it for other items other than plowing. And similar with lumberjack saw, which is a serrated saw, and you want to protect those serrations so that they work well when you're cutting the tree, then the person will not use the saw to cut meat or to cut cheese or to do other things that might have been mutar on Shabbat because it's so expensive and such a specialized item that you wouldn't use it for anything else because of the loss that would be incurred if you did utilize it. And there even Rabbi Shimon, as we say, he's the author of that Mishnah, says that these items are excluded from usage on Shabbat, and he believes that there is muksa machmat chisaron kis. All right, now the next Mishnah, which is the final Mishnah in the parak, is mefirin nidarim b'Shabbat, nishalim nidarim shein l'torach Shabbat. So there is a difference between hafarat nidarim and 
She'ilat Nidarim. Afarat Nidarim is something that is explained in the Torah in Pashat Matot that a father has this right with his guards to his daughter and a husband has this right with regards to his wife that if they make a neder that affects the other party in some way, then that party has the right of annulment to make fair to nullify that nether that the woman took. That's called hafarat nidarim. The Torah tells us that you can do that beyond shamol. On the day that he hears about it, he's allowed to do hafarat nidarim. And the Mishnah tells us that doing that hafarat nidarim on Shabbat is permissible. Vinishalim nidarim. Shelat neder is where a person or individual goes to a chacham in order to undermine the neder retroactively, where they come to the chacham and say that they did not anticipate facing such difficulty, they didn't think about these ramifications of their neder, and now they're sorry that they ever took the neder, and through that, the chacham can be matir the neder. There are two mechanisms for doing that. One mechanism is to go to a chacham mufla, a unique Talmud chacham of a high level. He can do it alone, or you can use shlosha head yotot three regular people that form a baitin, and they could also be matir the nether for you, assuming that it meets the requirements that allow one to be matir nether, as we'll learn when we get to the Mishnayot and Gemara in Nidarim. So over here, there's a qualification of She'en L'Tzorach Shabbat. You're allowed to do this for things that are necessary on Shabbat. The question which the Gemara will ask is, is that modifying only Nishalim the Nidarim? Is that also modifying Mefirim Nidarim? The truth is that are two possible reasons why you can't do this on Shabbat. One possibility is it looks like you're doing a din on Shabbat because you're convening a quote-unquote bait in in order to deal with the issue. Or the other issue is that it's a tircha shena tzricha. It's you're doing extra work or engaging activities that are not necessary for the oneg Shabbat, And that's why we would not permit it. It would seem to be that we would favor that second position because first of all, shelat nidarim can be done with a chacham yachid and not just with a bait in of hedyotot. As well as the fact that you're allowed to be mefer nidarim. Now for that nidarim has nothing to do with a din. That's a right that's granted from the Torah to an individual. So it seemed to be that we don't let you engage in activities that have normative implications when they're not necessary for Shabbat. You're allowed to plug up the window. This is what we saw in Rabbi Eliezer on Kuf Chav Hei Amud Bet, Kuf Chav Vav Amud Aleph, with regards to whether you're allowed to put shutters into the windows whether that's considered to be mostly Falbinyan on Shabbat or not, and we paskin, as the Mishnah here says, and the Gemara brought that as a proof, the Stam Mishnah over here sounds like the Chachamim, that you're allowed to put the shutters or block up the window on Shabbat. You're allowed to measure the size of a piece of cloth to see whether that piece of cloth meets the requisite threshold to become Tamei, and if it is Tamei, then did it impact on Taharot? Again, these are all things that have normative invocations on Shabbat. We allow you to measure, even though generally measuring would not be allowed on Shabbat. Here, there's a dispensation because we need it to know the halachic outcome which has ramifications on Shabbat. Modudim at the mikveh and similar you're allowed to measure the volume of a mikveh to make sure that it's reaching 40 sa'ah. You do that by checking whether the space where the water is is 3 amot high by one by one amot, which is what the Gemara in Psachim tells us is the area that contains the volume of 40 sa'ah. There was an incident that happened in the time of the father of Rabbi Tzadok and in the time of Rabbi Ben Banit that they blocked up the window with a tfiach, as Rashi says over here, which is a klicheres. A klicheres is not mikabel tumami gabo from its external side. So they used that to plug the window so the tumah couldn't get in. There are others like the gonim that suggest tfiach is some sort of growth or some sort of vegetation that they blocked up the window with. Because shruat amikeda begemi, they also tied up a klicheres 
with a gemi, with a reed, leidaim yesh begigit potech tefach, to check whether the barrel had an opening of a tefach, imlav or not. Umidivrehem lamadu, and from what we see here, we learn, shepokukim, you're allowed to plug the windows on Shabbat like the sheet of the chachamim, Modudim, b'makom mitzvah, you're allowed to measure. Vikoshrim b'shavat, and you're allowed to tie a knot on Shabbat. Rashi over here says, Kesher she'en shel kayama, afilu lechatchila. Even though we have three categories of sharim, which are kesher shel kayama, which is a surmi doraita, kesher she'en shel kayama, which is a surmi dorabanan, then there are sharim that are mutarim lechatchila. Seems from Rashi over here that this is a kesher she'en shel kayama, which is either a iser dorabanan, and therefore b'makom mitzvah, you could suggest that the Chachamim waived their Isur of Kesher She'enu Shel Kayama, is what the Torah says in Siman Shin Yudzayin. Or you could say that it's one of those Kesherim that's Eno Shel Kayama, but it's also Mutar Lechatchila. And that will be Nafkamino, which is discussed Aloha and brought in the Mishnah Brua as to whether there is a dispensation for tying a knot that otherwise would be Asur de Rabbanan on Shabbat, B'Mokom Mitzvah. Or is this simply a heter that involves whether it's Chulin or whether it is a Mitzvah, these are ksharim that are mutar gamre, and that it's even without a mitzvah, these ksharim are mutarim, because they're not kesher shel uman, and that you can see in the Mishnah Brewer there, in Siman Katan Yud Gimel. As far as what the case is, that will be discussed later at the end of the Gemara. Ibaidu hafara ben l'tzorech ben shalol l'tzorech. How do we understand the Mishnah? Again, that statement that says l'tzorech Shabbat, is it modifying both hafara and hatara, or just hatara? So the first option is the possibility that hafara can be done whether it's for necessity on Shabbat or not a necessity on Shabbat. The sheila letzorech in shalol letzorech lo. Whereas when it comes to sheila nidarim, if it's necessary on Shabbat, we would do it. If it's not necessary, we wouldn't. That's why the Mishnah separated these two categories out in the Mishnah. Or maybe it's modifying both of them. Letzorech Shabbat modifies both hafara and sheila nidarim. Why did then does it? Separate out hafara from sheila. Yishum the hafara ain't tzarich beitin. The sheila tzricha beitin because the mechanisms for doing them are different. Hafara is done by the baal, the husband of the woman that he's married to, or by the father to his daughter. Whereas a beitin is used in order to undermine a nether. Doesn't literally need a beitin for sheila because we said before you could have a chacham that does it, but that's a different mechanism than the father or the husband being made for the nether. So the Gemara says, Tashma, the Tani Zute the Bay Rav Papa, if Zute from the Beit Midrash of Rav Papa, may firin darim b'Shabbat l'Tzorach Shabbat, l'Tzorach Shabbat in shalol l'Tzorach Shabbat lo. Seems to be that it's only by Tzorach Shabbat that we have this heter to do it. Shalol l'Tzorach Shabbat, we do not have this heter. And again, that means that it's modifying both items in the Mishnah. And the reason it separated them is because the mechanism of how they work is different. Lishnah Rina, which gives more explanation to this differentiation. Ibailu l'tzorech atar vayuktani. Is the tzorech here modifying both of them? Vishalol l'tzorech lo. And therefore, if it was not tzorech Shabbat, it would not be allowed. Alma. You would then conclude that hafarat nidarim me'et lei. That hafarat nidarim can be done over a 24-hour period. The Torah says that the husband or the father has a right to be made for the nether biyom sham'o, on the day that he hears it. The word yom in the Torah, you always have to ask the question whether yom means daytime, or does yom mean 
a 24-hour period, day and night. So the question here is, Biyom Shamo, does Biyom Shamo mean on the day that he hears it, mean until sunset on that day? Or does it mean a 24-hour period of a Yom, a day and a night? Similar to the way in English, the word day can mean daytime, or the word day can mean a whole day of both night and day. So if you assume that the Hafarat Nidarim cannot be done on Shabbat, unless it's the Tzorech Shabbat, then we would assume that Hafarat Nidarim can be done for 24 hours. And that means that you have an opportunity to still be may fear the neder after Shabbat is concluded. So since you have that opportunity, we're not going to let you do on Shabbat something that's not necessary for Shabbat, when you can complete it after Shabbat. And that's why only things that are Tzorech Shabbat can you do a Farat Nidarim. Odilma, Kitani the Tzorech, Asheilahu Diktani. Or maybe Tzorech Shabbat is only modifying Sheilat neder. And Avarat Nidarim, we will let you do it even on Shabbat itself. Alma, from there you would conclude, Avarat Nidarim Koleyom. Avarat Nidarim terminates at sunset on the day that he hears about it, and therefore we have to allow him to do it on Shabbat. Again, there's no Easter being violated. It's only something that's a Tircha She'enet Tzricha. But nevertheless, if he doesn't do it, he's going to lose his opportunity to do Avarat Nidarim. We're going to permit him to do it on Shabbat, even if it's not the Tzorech Shabbat, because otherwise the window closes. And so therefore, that would be the conclusion. So depending on how you read the Tzorach Shabbat modifying Hafarat Nidarim will be determinant as to whether you think Nidarim have 24 hours for Hafarat Nidarim, annulment by the father or by the husband, or do they have only until the sun sets on that day that he hears about it? Tashma. So again, we'll bring the proof from the same Tana de Rabzute, the Beira Papi, Mefri Nidarim B'Shabbat, the Tzorach Shabbat, the Tzorach Shabbat in, Shalol the Tzorach Shabbat lo. Alma, so the conclusion then is Hafarat Nidarim made late. That Avrad Nidarim is allowed for 24 hours. Since we do not permit you on Shabbat to be made for Nidarim that are not related to Shabbat, that means that you must have an opportunity after Shabbat to deal with it. If that's the case, that means Avrad Nidarim lasts more than just the day itself, meaning until sunset on that day, it must be a 24-hour window. The problem with that is, Amaravashi, Vanan Tanan. Don't we have an explicit Mishnah in Nidarim that says otherwise? Avrad Nidarim, Kolayom. That Avrad Nidarim is until the end of the day, Yesh V'Dabar Akel Achmir. Sometimes that is favorable, sometimes that is negative. Kate what's an example of that? Nadra, Lele Shabbat. She takes the nether on Friday night, right after sunset. Mayfair Lele Shabbat, the Yom Shabbat. You really basically have 24 hours, Ajitachshach, until the sun sets on Saturday, on Motzei Shabbat. That will be the period that he has for Farat Nadarim. That gives you a day, almost a 24 hour window. Nadraim Chashicha. On the other hand, if she takes the netter on Shabbat itself, or any day, right before sunset, then you only have that small window until sunset to be made for the nether. If he doesn't get it in before sunset, then you, you can't any longer do a farat nederim. So you see from that Mishnah that the cutoff is sunset and not a 24-hour period. It can be close to 24 hours, but that's the maximum. You don't always get 24 hours. You only get until sunset. That's the case. You should be allowed to be Mayfair Nidarim on Shabbat, even if they're not Lutzorach Shabbat, because otherwise you're going to lose that window of opportunity. And based on this Stam Mishnah Nidarim, that seems to indicate that, that it's only during the daytime you're allowed to be made for Nidarim, our Mishnah modified by the Tana de Rav Zuti seems to indicate that it is made late. So now you have a steer between the Mishnayot. I says, that's not a problem. It's a Machloket Tanaim. We have that in Nidarim as well. The Tanya of a Brayta, Farat Nidarim Kolayom. Farat Nidarim is all day, meaning until sunset. Biosi Rabbi Yehuda. Verbalazer Rabbi Shimon Amru, made late, that you get a 24-hour window. And as the Balei Atosafod point out, that the Hilchot made mate, Logaros. The Gemara here does not conclude with Allah is made the eight because the Ferush Rabbeinu Chanano b'Nidarim Ashma the late Hilchatahachi. Because we have in the Gemara Nidarim the Gaonim and Rishonim who indicate clearly that Allah is not like this pair and it's not made the eight. 
So even though our Mishnah seems to indicate, based on the qualification of Zuti de Beirav Popi, that it is made late, nevertheless we follow that Mishnah in the Darim that says Hafarat Nidarim only goes until sunset on the day the Yom Shamal on the day that he hears about it. Minishalim Nidarim. So now Gemara asks Ibalu Kishaloa Yellow Penai is it only allowed to be Matir Neder on Shabbat when he didn't have sufficient time before Shabbat to deal with it. So since he didn't have sufficient time to deal with it, or it was impossible to deal with it, we allow him to do it on Shabbat. Or maybe even if he had time beforehand, nevertheless, since it's necessary for Shabbat, we're going to take care of it, even though he could have handled it before Shabbat. This is somewhat akin to what's called What happens if a person intentionally doesn't do work before Yom Tov, and then now on Cholom it becomes a Dovar Aved. So now that it's a Dabar Aved on Yeholam Oed, you're allowed to do it. But it's only a Dabar Aved because you didn't deal with it before Yom Tov. So over there, there is a penalty in place to not allow a person to do such a thing or to be Mekaveim Lachtodem Moed. But over here, the Gemara concludes differently, which is Tashma. That's Kigulei Rabbanan, the Rabzutra, Breder of Zera. The Rabbanan were Matir Neder for Rabzutra, Breder of Zera, about some sort of Neder that affected his Shabbat. For instance, a nether that he would fast, and that fast would then also fall out on Shabbat, and he either didn't realize that, or it was going to ruin his own egg Shabbat, and he didn't contemplate that beforehand, and now they're going to be matir nether, so he can eat on Shabbat. And they were matirs nether afa gadavalei p'nai. Even though he had time on Erev Shabbat to deal with it, nevertheless, since on Shabbat it was an issue for Oneg Shabbat, they allowed him to do hatarat nidarim on Shabbat itself, even though he could have handled the issue before Shabbat. Now the Gemara comes back to that final case in the Mishnah and deals with the technicalities of what happened in that case. This is a deep sugya in the Mishnayot and Olot. It's worthwhile to take a look in the Mishnayot and Olot in Perak Yud, Mishnayot Aleph through Hey. Over there, deal with this sugya. Rashi himself says that those Mishnayot are very difficult to understand, and there are machlokot, Rishonim, exactly how to understand all of them. And that leads also to a machlokim amongst the Rishonim here, as to explaining the case that we have. We'll first explain it according to Rashi, and then we'll explain it according to the Rebbeinu Hananel, and then according to the Rambam. So it says here, What was the case? Rashi claims there was a small corridor passageway between two houses. And there was Tuma there. Rashi says that there was an individual dying in that alleyway or that passageway between the two houses. He was still alive at this time. So now the mate is lying there. And there is a cracked or barrel that is not complete sitting on top of these two houses. You have two houses that are adjacent to each other. In between the two houses is a small, narrow causeway, alleyway, pathway that goes between them. Over that pathway is a gigit, some sort of barrel or cover that is cracked. One of those houses has a window that faces in towards that pathway, and that window is adjacent to where the barrel on top that is cracked covers over. And they're afraid that this individual is going to die. And when they die, there's going to be tumat. Then there's going to be what's called tumat ohel. Tumat ohel is when you have something that shares a common roof, the tumat moves a tumat mate from one area to another area. So their fear is that the barrel that's sitting on top of the mate is going to carry the tumat through the window into the house, because now there's a common roof with this barrel on top. 
that makes it that it connects to the window, and if the window has the size of a Maloya egg roof, it will allow Tuma to pass through it, and therefore the Tuma will enter in the house and make everything in the house tame. So before the person passed away, they plug that with a Kli which is not Mikabal Tuma Migabo on its outer side, it's not Mikabal Tuma. So they used that, and they pushed it into the window. So now the window doesn't have an opening that will allow the Tuma to come in. After that, they tied a Kli that was the size of a Tefach, Begemi with a reed. As Rashi says over here, the reason they use the reed is because the reed is moist, and the reed that's moist, which is animal feed. So either you're going to take it off because it's used for animal feed, and therefore you're not going to leave it tied, so that's why it won't be a Kesher Shokayama. Or as Rashi says here, it's going to dry out and fall apart, so it's not going to be a Kesher Shokayama. Either way, it's not a problem with a Kesher Shokayama. That's why you specifically use the Gemi. And again, that goes back to what seemingly is Rashi's position here. This has nothing to do with the mitzvah. This has to do with the fact that it can't become a Kesher Shokayama, and that's why it's mutar even by Chulin to be used over here. Leida. What do they want to do? So whether there's an opening of a tefach in the gigit that's sitting above. Why does that have an afkamino? Is because a potech tefach allows Tuma to escape and not to be covered by an ohel. So the Mishnayot in Olot discuss this factor, which is that if Tuma is locked in to a certain encasement, then if that encasement is at least a tefach cube, then the OL, or this encasement, contains the tuma inside of it. If you have an opening that is larger than a tefach by a tefach, that allows the tuma to escape from that area and go into other areas. Now, the Mishnayot over there distinguish between whether the mate is sitting under that opening or is the mate sitting inside the house. So, for instance, you have a house that has a skylight in it. And the skylight is a tefach by a tefach. And now there's a mate in the house. If the mate is in the house, then the entire house is tamay, because the roof of the house covers the mate and all the items in the house. Anything that is directly below the skylight is actually tahor, because that tefach by tefach doesn't share a common roof with the mate. The truth is that even if it's less than a tefach by tefach, it will also not affect anything that sits directly below it. The only difference will be as to whether... The Tumah is sitting directly below that opening. If the Tumah is sitting directly below that opening, if it's a Tefach by a Tefach, then the Tumah is able to rise and go up to the upper area. So, for instance, if you have Tumah sitting directly below this skylight in a house, then the house itself will remain Tahor, because the skylight's a Tefach by a Tefach, and the mate is sitting under it. So the roof of the house is not shared commonly with the mate itself. But say there's another level above that, and that has a roof on top of it, then the Tuma will extend up into the upper area because of that opening of a tefach by a tefach, and then the upstairs will become Tameh, and that roof that is upstairs make the entire upstairs Tameh, the whole upstairs Tameh, and possibly even the downstairs, because now it makes it a common roof for the downstairs as well. On the other hand, if that opening is less than a tefach by a tefach, then the Tuma below it, anything that's directly above it will be Tameh, but it's not wide enough to allow it to become an ohel, and therefore even things that are in the upstairs area will not become tamay, because the tumah is directly below the skylight, that opens up into an area above, but it's less than tefach by tefach. The downstairs doesn't have a common roof, so there's no tumah in the bayit, but the upstairs doesn't also get the tumah, because there's not a wide enough berth there, opening, to allow the tumah to rise to the upper side. So Rashi seems to make a suggestion here that the mate is sitting directly under this crack. If the crack is a tefach wide, then it's a place or an opportunity for the Tumah to escape from the OL because there's a opening that's a tefach by a tefach wide, and that allows the Tumah to escape. If it escapes, then there's no longer an OL over it, 
and there's no oil over it, they can't bring the Tumah into the window that is nearby, and then they don't need to keep the Tfiach in the window because it's not going to be an oil. But on the other hand, if that crack is less than a Tefach by a Tefach, then it would function as an ohel over it. And if it's an ohel, it will bring the tumah into the window if they had not plugged it with the mikedah. So that's the way Rashi understands why they were measuring to see if there was a poteach tefach there. The difficulty with Rashi's explanation, and he himself already notes that he has trouble understanding the Mishnayot in Oholot and Perik Yud, all the different scenarios, but the problem is that the Mishnayot, Aleph and Bet over there, say it makes no difference whether the mate is under an opening that's a tefach by a tefach, or it's under an opening that's less than a tefach by a tefach, as long as it's below the crack, then the tumah stays under that crack, and it does not affect the houses on either side. And that's what Tosafot asks over here. Well, I pay according to Rashi's explanation, that if you aim the sedak poteach tefach, you know there's not an opening of a tefach there, kemen mate connect all, since the mate is directly below the crack, it's not considered to be an olamate, like the Mishnayot in Olot, Perik Yud, Aleph and Bed say it doesn't matter if it's a poteach tefach or less than a poteach tefach, unless you cover that hole above, it has no ramifications how big the hole is, because as long as it's directly below that hole, there's no ol over here, and it doesn't bring the tumah into the house, like Rashi is suggesting. The second thing Rashi suggested over here is that the person is still alive in this pathway, and he's about to pass away, and then they plug the window before he passes away. Which means that you do it with a whole mate that is there. Dealing with a whole mate that's there below a crack, it's obvious that the crack is a buteach tefach, because for the mate to be below that crack, would have to be a significant crack in the barrel for that to be the case. The Tosafo tries to answer on behalf of Rashi that it's a barrel that's sitting on its side, and if it's cracked lengthwise along the barrel, it actually separates. If there's a tefach between the two sides of the barrel, it would separate them and then make it that they're not a continuous or contiguous roof, and then there would be no ohel over there, and maybe you can explain it that way, but he still thinks that the first question which he asked, which is, when you're under the crack, it doesn't matter whether you have a tefach or not, tefach squared or not, it still does not affect the tumata ohel. And so he therefore favors the explanation of the Rabbeinu Hananel. To those that want to explain, like Rashi who mentions this third Mishnah in Olot, which is that there is a Mishnah that says, Mixa Tumaba you have a portion of the of the mate underneath the house, the roof of the house, and part of it underneath the arubah, then there's a differentiation between whether there is a poteach tefach or not. If there is a poteach tefach, then that which is underneath the roof of the house, then the house itself is tamay, and that which is under the arubah, anything connected opposite that opening up above would also be tamay. If it's less than a poteach tefach, there's actually a three-way machloket in the Mishnah Gimel and Olot Perak Yud as to what happens then. This part that's underneath the house makes the house tamay mate, but that which is under the arubah is that which above it is tamay when it's less than a poteach tefach. Rabbi Meir believes yes. Rabbi Yehuda believes no, everything above it is tor. And Rabbi Yossi believes that it's a middle position, depends how much tumah there is, if there's enough tumah to break it up into two gzeitim or not. So what those that suggest is that this is following the sheet of Rabbi Yehuda, that that which is underneath the arubah, that's a poteach tefach, if the mate is partially under the roof and partially under that crack, then that crack, whatever's above it, is tahor. And in this case, the opening to the house, or the chalon to the house, was above or somehow connected to that crack. And therefore, if the crack is wider than a tefach, then everybody agrees that the tumah 
then extends upwards, and anything above it would be Tameh. Whereas, if it's less than a Tefach, then there's no Tumah there, according to Rebuilder, the Tumah does not Oleh. That's another possible way to explain Rashi's position over here. Many of the Rishonim point out this problem with Rashi's explanation, and then either give an alternate explanation, or the Meiri even says that maybe this Mishnah doesn't follow those Mishnayot in Ohalot. It has a different view with regards to a Poteach Tefach versus a less than a Poteach Tefach. Nevertheless, even though it's not halakhically correct with regards to the Inyanim of Tum and Tara, it still is halakhically normative with regards to the Inyanei Shabbat. And we can still learn about the Din of Pokukim, Odudim, and Koshrim on Shabbat for these issues. The explanation of the Rabbeinu Hananel is that the Hilkati here is not a pathway that's going between two houses, but rather a mound of dirt that it's milakate. It gathers higher and higher. So it's a mound of dirt that sits between two houses, separating the houses. But that mound of dirt does not reach the roof between the two houses. There's a gap there. That gap is filled with a gigit. They put a barrel in there to separate between the two houses. So now they have a barrel that blocks the upper area there, and that would stop, technically, the tumah from passing between the two areas. But that's only true if the barrel is whole. If the barrel is not whole, then that poteach tefach, that opening of a tefach, would allow the tumah to pass through. So there's a gazayit bin amate in one of the houses, and the other house, as the Rabbeinu Hananel says, that rotsim likanei smol kwanim. Kwanim wants to go into this other house, and they don't know if they can enter. So in order to allow them to enter, they plugged the hole in that barrel with a tfiach to make sure that the tumah couldn't pass through, because now that hole was plugged. After they plugged the hole, they went with the mekeda, which was very high up, so they put it up on a rod, and they tied a gemi and to hold the Mekeda to push it through to see how wide that hole was that they put the Tfiach in to see whether they needed the Tfiach or not, to see whether the Tumah would have passed and whether it was a Tefach wide. That's the explanation of the Rabbeinu Hananel, that we're talking about something that has a hole in the side, not something above. They share a common roof with a mound of dirt between them. Above the mound of dirt, between the top of the mound of dirt and the ceiling is a barrel. That barrel is cracked, and that would allow Tuma to pass from one house on one side to the house on the other side. That would only happen if it was a poteach tefach, because he's mevato the kli to be there. It no longer has a shame kli. And then the only question was, was there a poteach tefach or crack in the barrel that would have allowed the Tuma to pass from one side to the other side? Nothing to do with the tekli becoming tamay or not becoming tamay. Tosvo points out that that hole has to be a hole that's for usage, because otherwise we don't consider it to be significant or an opening that will allow Tumah to move back and forth. So they want to measure whether it has a poteach tefach. So they use the mikeda to measure that. In the interim, in order to allow the Kohanim to enter, they plugged it with a tfiach, the back of a klicheres, to block the Tumah coming from the other side in case the hole was too big, and then it wouldn't matter, but they wanted to know whether they needed to keep the tfiach there or not. And that's the question over here. The only problem with it is that the Gemara says that it was munechet al-gaban in plural, that the gigit was put on top of both of them. According to Rashi, it means on the roof of each of the two houses that straddled, that were on each side of this pathway. According to the Rebbeinu Hanana, it should have said al-gaba, which was on top of the mound of dirt. There's only one item there, it's not two items there. And therefore, the word gaban is a little more difficult according to the Rebbeinu Hanana. The other possibility is the interpretation of the Rambam, who suggests that there were two houses that were adjoining that had a window between them, and the window had glass in it. And then that glass had a crack in it. And the possibility is if you have tumat amet, because I have to be made to one house, it would pass through the other house through the crack or opening in the glass. 
So they pakaku, they plug the glass with a tfiach to prevent the tumah from coming across. And then afterwards they measured it to see if it was a tofideach tefach, why to know if the items in the house that were there beforehand were tamay, or to understand whether they need to keep the tfiach there in order to allow people to enter the house afterwards and not become tamay tumat hamay. And so from that we learned midivrehem lamanu shipokakim, you're allowed to close up a hole in the window or put up shutters on the window. Modudim, you can measure to know, again, b'mokom mitzvah, whether something is creating Tumah, is causing problems on Shabbat. And as the Ritva points out, that obviously these measurements, l'mokom mitzvah, can only be done when it's in Tzorech Shabbat. Because even though before, back on Daf Kufnun, we said that you're allowed to do cheshbonot, show mitzvah, on Shabbat, those are things that you're doing in your head, or calculations you're doing in your head. But over here, to do active measurements or weighing of items, that would only be mutar, if it is makom mitzvah, and it's Sorech Shabbat, otherwise you need to wait till after Shabbat to take care of it. Be'koshrim b'Shabbat, and you're allowed to tie knots on Shabbat. Ula ikla lebei reish kaluta. Ula went to the, the house of the reish kaluta. Chaz the rabba baravuna, diyotin ba'avno, or ba'agno d'mayo. He was sitting either in a barrel of water, or he was sitting in a bathtub. That's the way the Tosfah brings from the Oroch. And it would seem to be that he was allowed to do this because it was in cold water. And back in Parakakiran, there was no institution that restricted going into cold water or bathing in cold water. Although, in the Shulchan Aruch, Siman Shin Chavav, the Mishnah Brewer brings some Magin of Ram in Siman Kotan Chav Aleph, that Katva Poskim Tinagush Lodar Chotz Klau Benaro Bemikveh, Matsui Lavoli Deskitat Seyar. So there is this restriction against going into or bathing in any type of water, but obviously this was before these chumrot were added, and therefore he was probably bathing or sitting in the cold water, which was not impermissible on Shabbat. And he was measuring it. When it comes to measurements that involve a mitzvah, that is permitted on Shabbat. The love mitzvah, it's not for a mitzvah, then, me amor. Since when do they say it's mutar? What are you doing measuring this bath or this barrel that you're sitting in? I wasn't paying attention. I wasn't intending to measure this for any reason. Mitasek in general is a tour with, with regards to mitzvot lotase because mitasek is always patur chutzmei chalavim varayot and especially by Shabbat it is patur because there's a requirement of malachet machshevet. So mitasek, as we saw earlier in the Gemara, in the Rashi and Tosafot, as to what exactly mitasek is here in the Gemara in Shabbat, that is patur, that's differentiated from mitasek and kolatura kula, but that mitasek could either here be manifest in the fact that he was saying that I was absolutely minded, and I was just doing it without thinking, and that's why it's called mitasek. Okay, mitasek was that he was measuring, but he was measuring for no purpose. And since it has no purpose on Shabbat, that's like mitasek balma, it's not like real measurement, and therefore it's not problematic on Shabbat, and that's why he was doing it, not because he was really doing any mididah, and truthfully, only mididot shal mitzvot are allowed on Shabbat. And with that, we complete the perek and the masechta, hadran alach mishiach la masechet Shabbat, Mazel tov, mazel tov, and completing Masechet Shabbat.